Life All Wisdom, where we are applying biblical truth to everyday life. My name is Derek Brown, and I am pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church in Cupertino, California. And I am here with Cliff McManus, and he is also pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church. And uh, we are both professors of theology at the Cornerstone Bible College and Seminary in Vallejo, California, just north of us. And today we are on part three of our discussion on the problem of evil. So we encourage you to go back and check out uh, parts one and two. That's at withallwisdom.org, where all of our podcasts are are hosted. And while I'm talking about withallwisdom.org, you should also check that website out for other resources, written resources on a host of topics, all grounded in God's Word and aimed at helping you in grow uh, spiritually in your walk with the Lord. And we cover a variety of topics, so there's always something there, I think, that's helpful to just about every Christian. And uh, we are coming back today to talk about the problem of evil. And I introduced it, uh, those we introduced it those first two episodes in the first episode, we basically defined the problem of evil, what it is, uh, and offered uh, some solutions to it. And then in the second episode, we talked about those solutions, and we challenged those solutions on biblical grounds and offered a, a biblical answer to the problem of evil. And then today, we want to talk about the pastoral implications, because that's really where it's going to to matter. There are people in your churches, in our churches, who need to have uh, an answer for this issue of evil and God's goodness and his sovereignty. And there's a right way to approach it, and there are wrong ways. And first and foremost, we have to have our theology right. So that's why we labored in the first couple of episodes in this series to really nail down theologically what Scripture teaches about God's nature, his character, uh, the nature of evil in the world, why it exists, how God uses it, how he's sovereign over it. And now we need to bring it home at a pastoral level so that we can truly help people, help Christians to deal with, manage, navigate life in a world where there is evil, while at the same time knowing that God is all-wise, all-sovereign, all-loving, all-glorious. And so that's our aim today, is to bring these all to bear with uh, their pastoral implications. So we have a number of things to to get into here. So let's just start right away. These are really in no particular order. These are just points that we want to make, each one important. And uh, Cliff and I are just going to go back and forth, hopefully, and uh, offer you several uh, practical points. I'm trying to synthesize everything we've been saying into a a, uh, coherent whole, while at the same time giving you clear pastoral implications. So first thing we want to say is that the Christian worldview enables the Christian to fully acknowledge evil as evil. And uh, we want to contrast this with other worldviews that either make evil illusory or take God out of the picture so that there really is no way of even defining evil. In the Christian worldview, because we, we know God's plan for it, we know that God himself is good, that he is in control of, of all things, that he is even controlling evil for his glory and for his people's benefit— we don't have to shy away from the reality of evil. We can look it square in the face, and we can call evil what it is. And we can know what evil is, because God's Word tells us what evil is. And so we can look at it at all its atrocity, tragedy, horror, and brutality. And uh, when we're preaching and teaching, pastors especially have to embrace the reality of evil and the heartbreak and bewilderment it causes, and not gloss over it, and quickly just jump to um, some sort of platitude like, well, God really cares, or whatever platitude you might choose. Uh, we have to be able to call evil what it is and to recognize that it's devastating uh, to us and to others. Uh, we must learn to weep with those who weep. That's actually a biblical command. Paul tells us in Romans 12, weep with those who weep. And 
really the only way you can do that is by recognizing evil for what it is. It's not an illusion. It's real. Um, <clears throat> we need to be able to take responsibility for our own participation in sin and evil, recognizing that we are sinners and that we uh, not only experience the fallout from sin and, and the suffering that it causes, but we also cause it, hopefully not often, but we do cause it, and we need to repent of that and and, and uh, look forward to when God is going to judge all sin at the end of time, but also thank him for the judgment of sin and evil in Christ, where our own sin and evil has been judged and condemned so that we don't have to uh, suffer the condemnation for the evil that we've participated in. But we also look forward to there coming a day when God will uh, justly judge all evil that has ever been committed in the history of mankind. At the end of time, there'll be perfect justice, no evildoer will uh, get away with what they have done. Either your sin and evil will be have been punished in Jesus Christ on the cross, or it will be punished forever in hell. So God will be upheld as, as just, uh, um, completely just, and uh, in no way liable for evil, but in fact perfectly just because he is punished in, in one of two uh, places and, and acted justly. Uh, Cliff, just that first point, learning how to look evil square in the face and weep with those who weep. Any thoughts on that introductory point? Yeah. In our first two episodes, we didn't really emphasize – I mean, we, we mentioned it. You did explicitly that evil is real and we weren't minimizing it by our agenda, what we are laying out and trying to explain. So I just want to emphasize that again. We do affirm – Evil is real. It is prevalent. It's horrible. It makes life difficult. Jesus himself was subjected to it in his life because he was called a man of sorrows. Yeah. So if there's anybody that can identify with the reality of evil, it's those who hold to a biblical and Christian worldview. And for you and I, you, as counselors, when we that's one of our basic jobs. We're right. to counsel right. people. As you were reading that verse of weeping with those who weep. Yeah. The only reason we counsel is because we're dealing with evil that's real yeah. in the world. Yeah, every that's every right. time anybody comes in with a problem, doesn't matter what it is, if it's marriage or somebody died and they're dealing with depression, yeah. right. or what we're really dealing with is uh, this person's very uh, real experience with some manifestation of evil in their life, and yeah. we're trying to find a biblical solution mm-hmm. for them and comfort them in light of that truth. So. Yeah. It's at the in terms of a pastoral perspective on evil. It's something that we live with every single day as shepherds. Yep, exactly. And kind of a corollary is is that when we do uh, one thing, we'll talk about. I'll mention is we don't want to hedge on God's sovereignty when talking about evil. We don't want to be. Um, we don't want to lack compassion and just kind of throw around theology, but we can't hedge on. God's sovereignty. We do need to be clear about it because that ultimately is the the hope of the of the believer is that God is in control of all things. But we want to make clear that God's sovereignty does not make evil good. Um, and in fact, when James says to rejoice, uh, he's not saying that we rejoice in the suffering in and of itself. Um, Can I make a comment there? Derek? Yes, please. It was probably 1994. I was a Bible teacher of a 12th grade. Bible class at a Christian school in Southern California. I don't remember what the topic was, uh, but it was an apologetics class. Mm -hmm. And this was a 12th grade senior girl 
was in the front row of the Bible class. She was a sweet girl. She was a Christian in a Christian home. But anyway, I read um, Romans eight twenty eight out loud to the seniors. God works all things together for good. Yeah, yeah. And she had a visceral, um, audible reaction to that verse. Hmm. And she was angry when hmm. I read the verse, Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things together for good. Because she thought that meant that God was saying that evil is good, right. that all things are good, yeah, including evil things. When that, that's not what the verse says, yeah, uh, that verse does recognize evil's a reality, but mm-hmm. it doesn't call it good. Mm-hmm. What it is saying is that God can and will turn that evil thing that God right. thinks is evil, He'll turn it into good for a good purpose. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. And the the cross we we discussed this last episode. The yeah. cross is really the the prime, the ultimate example of that very thing. Yeah. The cross, crucifying the Son of God, that was that's the most evil thing that could happen, and yet God used that to redeem His people and to bring Himself glory. And so that needs to be clear uh, as we are dealing with this issue. God's sovereignty does not make evil good. Evil is always evil, but in His goodness, God can turn those things, and He does turn those things amazingly um, to to His glory and to His people's good, his benefit. And even when James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds, um, he's not suggesting that the trials themselves are are good or that suffering in and of itself is good, but that what are you taking joy in? Well, the fact that your testing of your faith produces perseverance, that God is doing something with this suffering to make you more like Christ, to deepen your assurance, to strengthen your faith, whatever it might be. So it's just important kind of point to to make for pastors as they deal with other people. And I mean, for as Christians, as we deal with other Christians, I mean, you don't have to be a, a, a pastor necessarily to know that when you're counseling and, and helping another brother or sister in the Lord, that you don't want to lead them to believe that you're saying that the that God's sovereignty makes evil good. Evil is always evil and you have to face that. Yeah. Uh, another point that we want to make is that God, and again, this is, leads uh, logically from the last point, God often uses evil and suffering, which is, which is bad things, those things which are not good, for good. And I, I commended a, a book to our listeners last time. It was Scott Christensen, uh, his book, uh, What About Evil? Uh, Defense of God's Sovereign Glory. I want to recommend another book uh, that relates to God's sovereignty specifically, and it's called uh, God's Greater Glory by Bruce Ware. Uh, good, great book, just a, a defense of God's meticulous sovereignty. And he has a great section in there that's been helpful for me. I use this with our seminary, seminary students. Um, he gives several ways that God uses evil and suffering, things which are not good, for good. So I just want to run through these quickly, and they're all, I'll mention the Bible references. We won't have time to uh, read the Bible references, but I, I, I will mention them so you can go look at uh, look them up. Uh, first thing, God uses evil and suffering to enact righteous judgments upon rebellious sinners. And you might kind of hear that and be like, ooh, that's a good thing? Yeah, it is a good thing. It is good that God calls evil evil and good good and and acts decisively to judge evil. Um, you want to go to heaven to be with a God who has decisively judged evil and will never allow evil into his perfect heaven. And... Uh, so it is good that God makes clear what good is and makes clear what evil is by judging evil. Yeah. The I think it's Exodus 15 where 
God and Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea, maybe mm-hmm. over a million of them or whatever. Uh, and then Pharaoh and his chariots were falling behind, and, and then God brought the water down, and it said uh, that he drowned mm. all of Pharaoh's army that were on the chariots. And then yeah. it said they were scattered on the seashore afterwards, dead. So God killed the Egyptians, wow. the enemies of Israel. And yeah. the uh, what did Moses do after that? He wrote a song <laughs> and celebrated, and so did his sister Miriam. She got a tambourine yep. and all the ladies, and they started celebrating yep. the death of Pharaoh because of the wrath of God. Wow. And for us contemporary readers, we might find that scandalous yep. or a violation to our sensibilities. Yeah. But nope. Yep. That was righteous. Yep. Good reminder. Um, number two, God uses pain and suffering as an instrument to draw his wandering children back to him. And I have a question specifically about this. I'll, I'll ask it a, a little later, Cliff. Um but uh, we do want to recognize that God does use um, pain and suffering to draw his wandering children back to him. A couple of verses, Proverbs 3.12, Hebrews 12.9-11. through 11. Um, We want to be careful, though, how we talk about that. And I'm going to bring that up a little later, Cliff. I know you have some thoughts on it. Uh, we, we want to be careful how we draw the correlation between people suffering and their personal sin. Job's friends made that mistake. They drew a direct line between... Job's suffering and his sin, and they were wrong, and God was angry about their bad counsel. So we, we're not suggesting that, but we do want to face up with what Scripture says, that that is one of the tools that he can use, you know, a little, a little discipline to bring a, a wandering child back to himself. And so that is a, a one way that he uses suffering and evil, which is not good, to bring about good. Um, number three, God ordains suffering to produce spiritual growth in his people. And that, you see that in Romans 5, 3 through 5, that uh, this kind of string of, of um, character qualities that flows from the, the suffering that we, we endure here on, uh, on earth. I'll just start in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So we are justified by faith, not by our works. We have full access to God. We're looking forward to the glory of God someday. But not only so, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. And there you have... uh, uh, the exhortation or the example of, of boasting even uh, and glorying even in our sufferings, if you can believe that, uh, because we know that that suffering produces perseverance and character and, and hope. It, it does positive things in our spiritual life. And so there's an example of God using tribulations and suffering to, to do good in our life. And we saw that in James 1. I've already mentioned that. Again, Paul's not saying that you glory in the suffering as though the suffering and the evil that you're enduring is, is somehow good. What you're uh, glorying in is the fact that God is using that evil to produce something wonderful in you, namely perseverance and character and hope. And so those spiritual blessings uh, come through, sometimes come through suffering. Uh, any thoughts on those first three, Cliff? I got two more, but I want to see if you had any. No, good stuff. Uh, we'll come back to the Hebrews 12 one. You yeah, said. yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, number four, God can use suffering to reveal our weaknesses so his glory can shine through to us to a greater degree. 
and he did this with, with Paul. Paul said actually he would boast in his weaknesses um, so that uh, Christ's power would be seen all the more and he could experience uh, Jesus' power in his life all the more. And so God may bring about some suffering and, and some evil to reveal our weaknesses so that we rely upon the Lord Jesus even more and so that his, the glory of his power can shine through us even more. And then uh, finally, number five, God ordained suffering in our lives. And I'm sorry, that was, you can find the textual grounding for that in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12 and uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. And then finally, God ordained suffering in our lives so that we might better comfort and minister to others. And you see that in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. Paul said that they suffered and then were comforted by God. So then they could comfort the Corinthians as they suffered and be a a tangible way, means of comforting them. And so those are a few ways. I thought that was helpful, the way uh, Bruce Ware categorized those. And uh, he he was careful to say that God can, God does, God can um, use these ways. And to not suggest that every element of suffering uh, is related specifically to one of these categories, but that God can and, and does use these these particular um, experiences of suffering to to do positive things, good things in our life. So now I do, I want to return to the issue of um, drawing a, a correlation between a person's suffering and their personal sin. Uh, Cliff, I know that you've You've actually talked to people who have suggested that when you suffer, that is actually, you can know that that is God's discipline for your your sin. Um, and we would reject that idea, but do you want to comment on, on that and, and what Hebrews 12 is teaching? And Yeah, that's a, I've found among Christians, it's a pretty natural um conclusion that they come to sometimes out of guilt or over-introspection or reading Bible verses the wrong way, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I've found it to be more common than I realized, even recently in counseling, that people think that bad things are happening in their life because God is punishing them. And these are Christians that are telling me this. Right. Some people have been Christians a long time and have been trained well in Scripture, and they still, that's a part of their understanding that this is how God operates. Mm -hmm. Everything, God's mad at me, God's punishing me, and every bad thing in my life might be some element because I did something wrong. Um, And we know that's not true because of scriptures, like John 9, where there was a man born blind. Right. And the apostles who, you know, Jesus is training them, and they automatically conclude, oh, this man was born blind because his parents must have been evil or maybe he's evil. Right. But bad things happen because people are evil and God's punishing them. Right, Jesus? And Jesus <laughs> said, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. <clears throat> God sovereignly allowed this man to be born blind so that for one purpose that he might reveal his glory with me doing a miracle of allowing him to see. This had nothing to do with his personal sin or his parents' sin. So John 9 is very clear. Mm-hmm. But people misinterpret Hebrews 12 where it says that good parents will discipline their children when needed. Mm-hmm. And God the Father, he's even a better parent, so shouldn't be a surprise that God the Father, who loves his children, is going to discipline us occasionally. And that's why he does discipline us. The word there is discipline. It doesn't say submit to uh, or subject to all kinds of torment. Mm-hmm. 
suffering, uh, but discipline, mm -hmm. it's just the generic word. It can be positive or negative. It means training mm -hmm. to teach. Uh, it can be painful teaching, but that's the word in Hebrews 12. So God the Father, because he loves his children, us, and because we're sinful and we're prone to wander, prone to stray, that he wants to keep us on the straight and narrow. And one of the ways he does that is with uh, occasional discipline. Yep. Training uh, is the Hebrews author uses the word discipline and training. Uh, and when God does it, uh, it doesn't seem joyful. It is. It seems sorrowful or yeah. painful. No pain, no gain. But when God's done doing it, uh, we're trained by it. It's effective. It's efficacious. It accomplishes what God intended, and it yields good fruit. And yeah. the fruit is righteousness or what he says, sharing in God's holiness. Mm -hmm. So that's just one of the ways God helps us grow yeah. in the process of sanctification. But um, – it's at his discretion. It's case by case. Every person is different. Uh, the nature of how he disciplines isn't always some uh, kind of form of suffering that we can interpret. That's probably the biggest thing is yeah. yeah. biggest mistake Christians make is try, when they're in the midst of a trial. Right. My spouse just died. I have cancer. Uh, I just lost my job. And their mind immediately goes to, oh, God must be punishing mm -hmm. me. I must have done something wrong. Mm -hmm. That's completely unbiblical. Mm -hmm. And that is not what Hebrews 12 is teaching mm -hmm. at all. Your mind should first go to, oh, I live in a fallen world. Mm -hmm. This world has been cursed. So that's just as the sparks fly upward, there's yeah. problems in life. That's yeah. what Job said. Yeah. It's not God's fault. It's not God's mean. God's getting getting after me. <laughs> so – um, and some people say that all suffering in our personal lives is discipline from God because of sin yeah. in our life. Yeah. All suffering in my life is discipline from God because of sin in my life. That is categorically false yeah. and wrong, and it, it's really a twisted, distorted view of God yeah. and his grace. And I I don't even try to figure out – in the if I'm in a trial, and mm -hmm. I'm in trials all the time, we all are. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got suffering in your life. Mm -hmm. When I'm in the middle of a trial or I'm suffering about something, I don't try to figure out what God is doing. Right, exactly. God, what are you doing? And you know why, Dirk? Because I have no idea what he's right. doing. I can't figure it out. Right. He's completely sovereign. Uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts, God said. He reminded me in Isaiah. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to try to figure out his thoughts. Mm -hmm. And usually it's only in hindsight. Sometimes exactly. it's years later. Yeah. Oh, that's what God was doing. Yeah. And there's the likelihood that we will never figure it out in this life. It's mm -hmm. only when we get to heaven. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, that's what you were doing. Yeah. Okay, I didn't understand that, but I want to trust you. I want to walk by faith, not by sight. Yeah. And not try to interpret what you're doing in the moment. What yeah. is God doing right now yeah. in the midst of this trial? What's God trying to teach me? Sounds like a good question, but I, I think it's a futile question because mm -hmm. we're finite. Yeah. And you're right. 42 chapters of Job, his four friends trying to actually answer that question. Yeah. What is God trying to teach you, Job? We'll tell you. <laughs> they were wrong. Yeah. God said, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, and it's such a helpful, helpful thing to be reminded of, uh, especially for pastors, because if you wield this wrong, you're going to just devastate people and confuse them and and uh, to have them start believing that every element of suffering they experience is direct punishment for their sin. Um, it really, it also takes away from uh, what Christ has accomplished on the cross um, and just the way that now God uh, uh, responds to us and, and interacts with us, he interacts with us through, uh, through, um, as a loving father because his wrath has been poured out on the cross. And so even this training and even the unpleasant things that the uh, author of Hebrews talks about and 
chapter 12, even these unpleasant things are are used for our, our benefit from a loving father. But as Job, the story of Job points out, and even you talked about the man born blind, you cannot start trying to interpret the ways of God and drawing these lines of correlation between one's sin and uh, a person's suffering. Uh, however, that does not mean, and I, I, I believe you, you'd agree with this, that does not mean that there aren't times when people do experience um, the fallout from their sin. Like, for example, if you um, commit adultery and then your marriage starts to fall apart, well, um, that experience of marital trouble as a result of your uh, adultery is to be expected. Um, And so there are certain uh, things in life where there are just natural consequences that God uses to, to discipline and to rebuke and correct that are a direct result of your foolishness and your sin. So we do need to say that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point, uh, Galatians 6. You you reap what you sow. Mm-hmm. I mean, God put physical laws in the universe, the law of gravity, and he also put spiritual laws, and that's one of them. Yeah. You, you sin, and they have natural consequences. Yeah. All right. Um, so one thing I want to talk about is it's kind of the way that we as Christians, as, as pastors, wield the sovereignty of God. Um, I think we need to be balanced here because on the one hand, a person who has been devastated by suffering, you don't want to flippantly throw around, you know, the doctrine of God's sovereignty or, you know, Romans 8.28 and, you know, kind of say, Romans 8.28, you'll feel better in the morning. You know what I mean? Um but, and a, a, a um, conversation with a, uh, a seminary student recently kind of prompted me to think more about this. But also, it's not helpful for them if you hedge on the sovereignty of God in any way in any of those conversations. So this is kind of a a fine line that one must walk. Just remain biblically balanced between not flippant, flippantly throwing around the doctrine of God's sovereignty, but at the same time not hedging on it, being compassionate, weeping, recognizing the evil of evil and the sinfulness of sin, uh, while at the same time uh, in, in recognizing the state that they're in, while direct, understanding but what they really truly do need is a robust vision of God's sovereignty and meticulous providence over their, their life and even their their suffering. Do you, do you have any thoughts on kind of this balance that we need to have? I've, I've, I know I've done it and I've had it done to me and I've seen people do it where they'll just kind of a lack of compassion, a lack of empathy, um, throw around almost as a cliche, kind of the Romans eight twenty eight um, verse and view of God's sovereignty. And they're just not to say that there's something wrong with God's sovereignty. That's not what I'm saying, but just there seemed to be something wrong with that approach. Uh, but then I've also seen the other side where people are hesitant to talk about this very clear teaching of the Bible that God is meticulously sovereign over even your evil, and that's what you need to hear. So I'd love to hear what you have to think uh, say about that, Cliff. Yeah, I think it's human nature to gravitate towards one extreme or the other mm-hmm. of dismissing God's sovereignty or trying to explain it away. Yeah. Like Ephesians one eleven, that God ordains all things that come to pass and that that no evil or suffering happens in this world without God allowing it or permitting it, mm-hmm. as we see in Job 1 and 2. There are a lot of Christians that have a hard time with that 
understanding that why would God allow that? He's completely sovereign. Mm-hmm. And he, he needs to be allowed to be sovereign as he's revealed himself in, in the word. We need to embrace that. We need to celebrate that and rejoice in that. Mm-hmm. That is who God is. Yeah. And then uh, the balance in the flip side is not being a just taking the data of scriptural mm-hmm. statements yeah. Yeah. Uh, theologically without any personal compassionate element in yeah. it, like that verse that I think needs to – the, the biblical truths like that need to flow from a, a shepherd's heart, mm-hmm. a heart of compassion – Weep with those who weep, yeah, and not be so overly uh, matter of fact about mm. it. Yeah, that's a good like way a to say Vulcan it. or uh, <laughs> being stoic about it. Uh, the heart of God, even God, God. That's amazing because God is completely sovereign, in charge of all things. He knows the future. He determines the future, and yet He has compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus Himself is the God Man, is weeping over uh, those who reject Him, and mm-hmm. that in eternity past He knew would reject them. Mm-hmm. So. Those truths go together side by yeah. side, and it comes from having – And it, you know, that's from a pastoral point of view. That's why to be a pastor, I think you have – you need to have the gift of being a pastor. Yeah. You can go to seminary or whatever and become a pastor and not have the gift of pastor, and yeah. you're a lousy pastor. <laughs> One of the areas where you're a lousy pastor is maybe in terms of being able to comfort people, give counsel. Yeah. And you can cite the theological truth like a textbook, mm-hmm. yet without any pastoral compassion yeah. or the heart of Christ whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a delicate balance, and it's not just a matter of practice. I think it's being led by the Spirit of God in an area of giftedness and, mm-hmm. and consciously thinking about mm-hmm. it and praying about it mm-hmm. to minister to people. That is an excellent point. Uh, I, I appreciate that, Cliff. the the way you The way you articulate it, I think, is is helpful. This kind of stoic downloading of biblical data as being the only approach to helping people. Oh, in their suffering, that that is an imbalanced uh, approach, and so that's a helpful way to put it. Uh, well, we have uh, some more things to say about the pastoral implications of uh, this discussion on the problem of evil, and so we want to come back with part four and discuss those things and wrap up this series on the problem of evil. Uh, we'd encourage you to check out withallwisdom.org, check out the other podcasts if you haven't already, and articles on this topic and other topics that are all rooted in God's Word and aimed at helping you grow in the Lord. And until next time, keep seeking the Lord and His Word. Mm